my entrepreneurial spirit has come about the fact that you get one life, one opportunity. And if you run me over in a bus today, or my wife shanks me, which is probably more likely, you know, I can say that I gave it everything. Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. In this episode, I'm talking to former England rugby player and MMA fighter, James Haskell. Since retiring in 2019, Hass' entrepreneurial spirit has really shown. He's written books, presented podcasts, announced a career change to MMA, and lastly, the pinnacle of his career, DJing at Bournemouth Sevens Festival. He's one of the biggest characters in rugby and always has something to say. So here's the big man himself, Mr. James Haskell. Hask, how you doing, fella? I'm good, mate. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Good, man. Where are you at the minute? Uh, I'm in what looks like a, a blind showroom um, <laughs> in, in or, or a teepee or some sort of band hut. This is kind of my, a bit like Superman had his fortress of solitude. This is my conservatory of solitude. It's my my DJ setups on the right there with my decks and where I do my sort of live streaming. This is where I record a lot of my uh, podcasts. I tried to move into the living room, but unfortunately my wife threw me back out as I've infected most of the rooms of this house. Um, so I'm trying to contain it. But yeah, I've just been recording my my Good to Bad the Rugby podcast. And then obviously I've got your I've got your uh, yourself now and then I've got a few other bits and pieces. So I spend a lot of time podcasting. Yeah, mate, you're a busy man. Busy, busy man. Well, let's get cracking. You've played a lot of rugby over the years. When did you first become a pro rugby player and why did you sign for Wasps? Um, look, I actually never wanted to be a professional rugby player. Uh, I wanted to be in the SAS or I wanted to drive a digger. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, my, pa- my parents spent, spent a lot of money on my education and were like, all due respect to all digger drivers, JCB drivers out there, they didn't feel that uh, was it no ten grand a term warranted uh, warranted that, and um, I don't think I probably had the mental fortitude to be in the SAS and probably would have got shot by my own side. So you know, I I was always focused on being an all round uh, person in terms of you know I did theatre, I, I played hockey, football, tennis, um, not great at any of it, but just sort of had a go at it. That's been my mentality in life really. And when I was 17 and still at school I got invited to um, attend a pre-season with Wasps or London Wasps it was then went away to Poland was training with all the um, sort of elite players and I got a chance to play twice for Wasps during that period which was insane and then I went back to schoolboy rugby which was kind of quite mad having you know reached that kind of professionalism and then had to go back to to, to play um, it was hard you know going back because I, it kind of ruined my what should have been a last carefree year of me of me playing you know but I was so in professional mindset I'd been playing with men I was bigger than than most of the lads it kind of sported but once you're in that conveyor belt I got offered a contract for the following year I finished school uh in June or July and then um what year what year are we talking so this was 2004 was when I became a, a, a legitimate professional 2003 was when the world cup year was when I've been training with all the guys in Poland Lawrence Delalio. Uh, you know, Matt Dawson, Rob Howley, Simon Shaw, Joe Worsley, sort of legends of the game. And then I and then I basically went back to school and then I finished school and, and had no gap year. Month, two months later, I was in for pre-season again to Poland. Um, and I, I haven't looked back since, really. I, I sort of deferred my university entry to give it one, one go. And 19 and a half years, I'm still doing it. So it sort of just happened by mistake, really. Mate, what's your, mate, what's your body like right now? 
Well, wrecked actually. We did uh, on, on, on the other podcast, do the good, the bad, and the rugby. We had Dylan Hartley on. We had uh, a few guys on. Everyone's sort of saying the same message. I'm, I'm 35. Uh, I just had an injection in my ankle yesterday. I've got arthritis in, in, in the back of there. I've got three bulging discs in my back at the moment. Um, and, you know, look, I, I wouldn't change anything. Rugby's, you know, not a particularly safe sport. Boxing's not safe. MMA is not safe. You can't make stuff like that safe. Uh, I think you could do a lot more to look after players in terms of the amount of training, the recovery, the nutrition, et cetera. But um, my body's pretty wrecked. It's, it's a shame, really. I, I was obviously embarking on this MMA career, got myself all ready for the first fight. I was training six you know, six days a week, uh, four hours at a time, flying into everything, sparring in the cage three days a week, full tear-ups, sparring every day, wrestling and wrestling jiu-jitsu. And then COVID happened and messed it up. And, and, and what's up with COVID is as soon as COVID came, I my body's just falling apart. You know, I don't know, sitting down too much or doing whatever. So I'm sort of in a bit of an uphill, uphill struggle at the moment. I wanted to buy a dog, but I wouldn't be able to walk it because I can't fucking walk anymore. Well, the, knee, the knees are gone, are they? No, no, knees are fine. It's my ankles. So basically, I retired. I had, I, 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 it's my last year at Saints, I basically, my ankle that had been bothering me for years started playing up. I, I, in 2016, on the Australia tour, I, I ruptured all my toe ligaments and tendons and everything in my toe. Had that reconstructed. Came back from that, went to Northampton. They probably went a bit mad in the, in the, in the pre-season, uh, to be honest with you. My ankle gave up. By the time my ankle got better, my toe was screwed and I had to retire before that World Cup. And now what's happened, I've just got arthritis. So I walk, I can't walk very far for very long. And because my back's fucked, I'm sort of like, I look all show. I look like I've got an absolute champagne setup, but unfortunately uh, I'm actually no use to anyone. <laughs> so how long, how long were you, how long were you at WASP before, before you went over to France, New Zealand and Japan? What happened there? Tell us that journey. So uh, look, I was very lucky with, with my early days at WASP. We won everything, it spoiled me. Um, as a professional player, you know, I thought winning Heineken Cups premierships was normal. I was surrounded by massive characters of the game, probably, you know, Leicester Tigers at the time were up here, Wasser up here, couldn't have been two different groups of people. You know, trained real hard, partied real hard, Wasps, you know, trained real hard, and probably just didn't have a lot of chat on anything else very hard. <laughs> but 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 they were, you know, the most one of the most successful um, premiership teams ever. And, you know, I was allowed to be a character and, and, and I really enjoyed my time at Wasp. Then I, um, and it's actually covered in my, in my book, a, a bit of a story about the reason why I left Wasp. And I won't go into all the details now, but it's, it's basically, you know, we got, we got, it took me two years to negotiate a contract with five or six different people. Every time they offered me a pay cut, Wasp used to bank on the opportunity that because you were going to win things, they could pay you less than anybody else. And their financial structures and, and off the field structures were terrible. Um, and, when we, when we came in, it took me two years to get to where I was. I thought I was going to sign for, the, for, for less money than I should have been on, but I was willing to stay because I was going to win. And they, uh, they gave me a sealed envelope, six lads sealed envelopes, and basically said, the offers in there are non-negotiable. We're not paying you agents fees. You've got 24 hours to the side, um, or you can leave, thinking that, you know, uh, thinking that we we're all going to fold. And a bit, so I opened mine. The mine was, you know, half what it had taken me two years to get to. So a bit like the, the Friends TV series, I, I got everybody round, rallied them together and was like, listen, if we stick together, negotiate together, they can't lose all 12 of us. Some people folded straight away, uh, but you can read the book to find out which motherfuckers they yeah. were, but they probably <laughs> got paid paid way more and offered things like the captaincy. And then uh, I then ultimately, I've been there for five years. I got an opportunity to start speaking to other clubs, got to talk to uh, Max Cuisini, the very famous owner of Stade Francais, the genius behind... The, the, the calendar, the pink shirts, the match day experiences. He took them from the fourth division 
to winning the the, the French top 14. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted to pay um, some good money. And I was getting to play with Sergio Parise, Dimitri Swarzewski, Julian Dupuy, Pierre Rabadan, um, Hernandez, all these blokes. And it was, um, it was too good an offer to turn down. So I left, I went to France, had a, a mad time in France for, for, for two years. Um, probably one of the most insane rugby experiences. I think over in England, we've got, we've got rugby owners who own clubs and they don't really put their head above the parapet. The Bath guy, you know, he obviously wants to be front and centre. He, you know, he, he puts himself out there, but most owners keep their, their, their shit locked down. In, in, in France, like Toulon's probably the, the more famous guy. He, he more out of when he was, he was mad. And then uh, Max Cuisini was the next one. You know, he used to come into the change room after a game. And if we lost, kick all the water bottles, call everyone the sons of bitches. <laughs> shit, you shit, you mad, mad. Rip, say you're going to rip your contract up, say that, you know, and then, and you know, cry and then leave. But because he cared. And, it, and it, it's one of those amazing roller coasters, really. You'd, um, you know, you'd go on an eight-hour bus journey to play a game and then stay in a shit hotel and they'd wonder why you, you know, weren't playing well. And they'd blame it on uh, the lads eating too many sweets on the bus when half, half the boys were at every petrol station just stopping for a tab. And you'd be like... <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, it was mad. It was wicked, and I wouldn't change it. And I, I would much rather have an owner like Max than any other owner I've had, really. Yeah. So you went there for a couple of years. Then did you go on to New Zealand, or did you come back to Wasps? Or? Yeah, so what, so what happened was, like, Wasps, um, you know, when I left Wasps, everybody slagged me off. Um, you know, ex-players came in, slagged me off, said that nobody had ever left Wasps was ever going to make it. Um, all the papers said I was money-grabbing, said I was never going to play for England again. I actually didn't miss an England game in the two years that I was at Stade Francais. Um uh, Wasps called me up and were like, listen, um, we want to have you back. Uh, finally offered me, it was the first contract in the 12 years that I was there that they ever offered me um, a pay rise instead of a um, instead of a pay cut. Every year, mate, for, for, for the mind, 12 years, every contract. So if you imagine some of the best rugby I was ever playing, they they offered me a, a, a pay cut. Even when I, you know, come back off the tour of Australia, playing some of the best rugby I ever played in my life, they always tried to have my pants down. So um, it was always a bit tricky. But this time they... They wanted me and I made them bleed for it. I fucking, I was like, look, you know, I'm going to, I pushed them to the, to, to the edge. Um, but what happened is I didn't want to come back. I'd been away for, in Paris for two years. I'd loved living away. I'd loved finding out about myself. I went there with no, you know, no family. Uh, I, I lived with a guy called Ollie Phillips, who you probably know. Everybody in rugby knows Ollie. And um, an offer came, and I said, I wanted to play Super 15. I said, listen, I want to make this happen. Uh, and I don't want to go back to UK. So my agent got me a contract with the, the, the Rebels, the Melbourne Rebels. Um, but because their season starts at a different time, you need to have something in the middle. So I was talking to me going back and playing for a premiership club for a year. But to be honest with you, uh, I was a wasp man through and through. I didn't want to go and spend a, you know, half a year, six months at a club. Um, you know, it was, I, I decided that I was going to, you know, want to go to Japan. So Japan came about and I got to go and play with Marnonu at the Rico Black Rams, live in Japan, which again, you know, what a place. Oh, what a country. Honestly, the best... One of the best countries I've ever been to in terms of like city, you know, Tokyo. I'd go back to Tokyo in a heartbeat. Every time you think you've explored it, there's just more weird shit you haven't seen. Um, so basically, I I then got a Japanese gig. When we went to the World Cup, we then went to the World Cup 2011. Um, 2011 was an absolute shower of shit. Um, I, describe, I describe it in my, I mean, I go into massive detail in, in 2011, why it was a complete fuck up um, and what all the off-field stuff happened. And I finally get my, get my say, you know, for a long time in my career, it, I've held my tongue because it wasn't the right thing to do because I wanted to play. But in my book, I've gone pretty hard at, at, at the truth of lots of stuff. And there was a big, there was a big incident over there 
a hotel maid accused me and a, a couple of lads of um, of assaulting her. Hey, we didn't go. We didn't do anything of the sort. Are a few fucks over. The woman was the woman was a pathological liar, and and um, Melbourne Rebels were like, "Nah, we don't have any. Don't want you. Don't want you." Tore the contract up. I think because they'd had a few problems with Sippy. Then you know, Cipriani got caught coming out of the night or, or, or nicking a bottle of champagne in a nightclub or some some bullshit. I think you know, and they basically were like, "We don't want another English lunatic." And um, bizarrely, the coach Jamie Joseph um, was in, in was in um, was in the same gym as Martin Johnson during the 2011 World Cup. My agent was talking to him at the end of it, and, and he asked about me, and he said, "Look, he's a hardworking guy." I don't think John O was always my, my my biggest fan, and perhaps after my book, he's not yeah. really a bigger fan of me anymore. But um, <laughs> but he uh, <laughs> but basically, you know, Jamie Joseph said, "Look, I'll take you," and I and I, and I went over there for no money, you know, at, at all, really. Um, I went for the league the league minimum, which I think was forty thousand Kiwi, uh, which is just about twenty grand or something like that to play for a season. And um, so, so I went to Japan. Then hot on a base on a front on a Thursday. I left uh, Wednesday. I left Japan, landed on a Thursday, did a team run Friday, was on the bench on Saturday for the Highlanders. Came on against the Chiefs, got got a match winning turnover, and then never looked back. Then basically, um, I got offered by Wasps uh, to sign again. Offered me a good contract. I signed. Wasps were actually um, going to get relegated. They were. They came eleventh in the bottom of the table. That the whole club was falling apart. I mean, if I'd known what the club was like when I was going to get back there, I probably wouldn't have wouldn't have come back. If it was only because of Tom Vondel's um, try saving tackle against Sam Vesti, um, did we stay up? Which is um, which is unbelievable for two reasons: that Tom Vondel ever made a tackle, yeah. um, and, <laughs> which is which is which was a shock, and the fact that Sam Vesti didn't score. And then I came back, spent six years there. Um, Wasps didn't offer me. Uh, a contract when I was my last year. Uh, the owner, I fell out with the owner. The owner didn't want me, um, and uh, I went to Northampton, and they were unbelievable. Northampton welcomed me with open arms, looked after me and my family incredibly well. So I actually, for all my heritage with Wasps, um, I sort of have you know real soft spot for North, for Northampton really because I don't speak to anyone at Wasps anymore. I mean, you know, there's a few changes, but I you know I speak to occasional players, and I love what Lee Blackett and the guys are doing. He's he's a really good guy, Lee. Um, but I don't speak to anyone there and they don't call me. I never go to any games. They don't invite me to do anything. Uh, the last time I went to a game, I went, to, I did something for BT Sport and uh, the owner came out of his box and gave me evils um, wow. the whole time, which is quite wow. funny. So, so if, you were the, if you were the owner of Wasps, roll on 20 years, multi-millionaire, you were the owner of Wasps, what would you do to bring back the players and that culture? What did you find out that, you, that, that they need to do to bring all that back and bring the players back together again? I mean, the, the, the mistake, so... so the, the mistake that a lot of people make is firstly, you know, when I retired and I said in, I said in the podcast, uh, Good to Bad Rugby, that, uh, you know, I didn't speak to anyone from WAS and, and members of the public, social media idiots. Oh, that's fucking, well, welcome to the real world. You know, I worked, I worked at fucking Sainsbury's for 30 years and I don't hear from anyone there. It's a little bit different when you're going out to, to, to sweat, you know, blood, sweat and tears with, with the teammates. You've bonded, you live and breathe these people every day. You go to battle. It's a different thing. You know, when you're giving your body to a club, essentially, and your heart, um, you know, I, I would say that it's very important about how you look after players, how you keep their heritage, also how you develop players through through a, uh, a team. I know salaries got all their shit from their, their salary cap, but they they brought a lot of those players through academies. Exeter, I think, do it brilliant well, brilliantly well. Wash used to do it brilliantly well. Then you know, then we've then we've gone away, and now actually the academies now you know showing benefit with Jack Willis playing incredibly well, probably. 
the best turnover expert in the Premiership by a long way, and I think he's going to probably play for for England soon. His brother Tom Willis. Um, I used to, actually I knew, when I was at Was, I knew, I always liked to keep a little bit of old school mentality, you know, like older players, younger players. So I'd always talk to everybody, um, but I would purposely get someone's like name wrong. So Tom Willis, I I called him, started calling him Tim in front of everybody, <laughs> waiting for somebody. And do you know what? It was, it was like it was like three three weeks before he went up to me. It was like. Um, James, um, it's actually Tom, and I was like, I fucking know it is, but he's he's now known as Tim. Everybody just calls him Tim. I fucked him. I think, so I love shit like that. You know that, that that's kind of quite. I, I miss that kind of um, that kind of stuff. But I, I would say to the owner, just you know, you can't sign in these world class players at, at, on a load of money and think and then don't underpay your current players. Don't manage the academy. Don't have a, an integral kind of. Um, system that feeds players all the way through because it's 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 what takes the heart out of it and then you know you you want players coming back to games you know like I, I know some clubs you know I know you know a couple of clubs that you know, paying you know the only reason the old players turn up was because they're they're put on the board or they're or they're paid you know you don't want that I, I'd I'd love to have finished at Wasps and business is business you've got to make some tough decisions and if I was if I wasn't the right face if I wasn't the right thing then it's fine but my my last um, Wasps dinner after 12 years was, I got invited up on stage with Guy Thompson, who I love Guy, Guy's a, t- a top mate, beautiful guy. Um, and they gave me 10 seconds, 15 seconds on stage, asked him one question and then left. And I sat out by the, I sat out by the bins and that was the owner's revenge. That was, that was his revenge on me. He was like, you know, you speak, you speak to me like that. We're going to stick you out by the bins. We're not going to give you any, any, any praise. We're just going to fuck you out the back door. And that's how, that's how 12 years of was finished. But, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that understands Big, big, big business, and you got to do that. So you know, but I think I'm I not think, sure. I'm not sure you have to be treated like that, if I'm honest with you. It's a hard one, mate, because you know it, it, what's amazing about professional sport and, and why I, you know fans fans don't have a lot of rationality at the best of times. That's why whenever you call up on Soccer Saturday, you know, on Five Live, you know, someone's always complaining about something. Someone always needs to get fired. Nobody can understand how their teams lost a few games, thinking that their team should always win. If every team just won their games, there'd be no fucking league and there'd be no betting because we'd always know what was going to happen. In, in rugby, they talk about loyalty. And I, I think if you understand from a business perspective, you are a commodity and that you, um, you know, once you have served your purpose, you are at service requirements, life has to move on. However, I agree with you. There are ways and means of doing that. And I think what gets lost sometimes is how to handle, how to manage. And I think just because someone was a good coach or has a lot of money doesn't mean that they qualify to have good people skills and good relationship skills. And my, you know, 12 years ended, ended like that. You know, I, I was, when I left Rico and when I left San Francisco, I had, a, it was a much more different affair, but I hadn't given 12 years of my life to that, to, yeah. that, to yeah. thing, you know, were you, were you heartbroken when you left? Yeah. Yeah, I was, yeah. I, you know, I, I had a really kind of, my wife, Chloe was, was livid. You know, she, she'd seen how hard I'd fought to, to get back to um, fitness to play, how every contract was an offer of a pay cut. There was, a, there was an incident on, on a boat trip where I got hung out to dry. I have nothing to fucking do with it. I got, um, uh, you know, they hung me out to dry. They sacked me. They sacked me as a captain because of it. 
Where was the boat trip? The boat trip was, uh, again, it's a ch chapter one of what a flanker, <laughs> my friend. It's, um, you know, I don't want to spoil everything. There's two of them up. There's two of them up. Uh, yeah, so basically it was, a boat, it was a boat trip and it, it involved some academy kid with a bottle of beer up his ass. You have to read the story. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty punchy. But I, I unfortunately was doing nothing except being dressed as a lady. <laughs> Quality. Mate, going, going back then, so we look at uh, Japan World Cup. What an amazing World Cup that was. We're all out there having the right laugh. What was, the, uh, what was it like? You were in the middle of your training regime for MMA. What was it like trying to uh, train in the gyms out there? Um, yeah, it was tricky um, because I got tattoos. So, so over in Japan, they, they have a massive thing about tattoos. Culturally, it's not seen as, uh, as very good. Um, I mean, I, when I first signed for, for Rico that round, I was going around and uh, I was asking um, the translators in front of the coaches. I said, oh, you know, what would you like to do in Tokyo? So I'd love to get a traditional Japanese tattoo. And I'd say it, and they just wouldn't answer me. They'd ignore me. And I thought, this is fucking weird. Like my, you know, I thought they were translators. They don't understand what I'm saying. Carry on next day. Where would you like to go? I said, well, can I have to see a tattoo part? I'd like to see them do it with a stick. I'd like to see if I get one. No, 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 ignore me, ignore me. It was only when one of the players took me to one side and said, listen, this is in tattoos in Japan are absolutely no go. They're associated with the Yakuza. You can't, the Yakuza like the mafia. You can't, you can't talk about it. So when I went to train over there, I was I was going to gym and I went to uh, Les Mills. I was like, oh, no, was it Les Gold's Gym? Gold's Gym in, 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 in Tokyo. And I walked in. You need to cover them up. I was like, well, I'm wearing a vest. What do you want me to do? Well, you can't come in. I said, well, I don't understand that. I'm not, I'm not a gangster. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a professional rugby player. I'm out here covering England rugby. You can sell it. Well, no, we can't do that. So then I, I, she's like, can you pull your sleeves down? I was wearing a T-shirt. So I pulled my sleeve down. It bounced back up. I pulled my sleeve down. I said, you strap it down. I was like, just give me some tape or something. So I covered it up. Next time I came in and I was like, you know, I've got tattoos on my feet. So I, I was doing barefoot something. Can't do that. Mate, there was one gym where everywhere I went, this bloke was like, I sat down on a bench, fucked. I was doing full on conditioning. So I was doing like Tabatas. So I was doing 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, five minutes, burpees, uh, you know, star jumps, press ups. And I was fucked on my phone, like checking my timer. Tap me on the shoulder, you can't sit down with your phone on the machine. I get up and I take the weights because you can't wear barefoot. <laughs> I was I honestly, genuinely, I went out, I just turned around and I said, listen, fuck off or I'll throw you out the window. And he was and he was like, what do you mean? I said, fuck off. And I because oh, when I get when I train, I get really angry. And I'm like, you just obviously look real startled and just panicked on his radio, like, you know. But honestly, man, I lost it was the closest I lost it. I honestly, I honestly just said to him, fuck off and throw you out the window. Because we were on like the tenth floor. So um, like I mean, I, I did go back and every time I saw him, he was like, Bowing after that, I was like, "Fucking mind your own, mind your neck." <laughs> What's um? What are your thoughts on when people retire? The mental health issues. Is there enough money pumped into mental health? I had I had Brett Gosper, the uh, CEO of World Rugby, on on the show last week, and he was very honest about it. I'd love to know your thoughts on 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 that subject. Mental health is uh, a huge thing, and you know, I know it's very fashionable in 2020 to talk about uh, mental health, and I think you know. You know, so fine balance with everything becomes the popular topic. People run with it, play with it, use it as an excuse. In professional sport, particularly, there is not enough done on the mental side of the game in any way, taking mental health issues out of the way. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Saints play a game. They start slowly. They, they All week, they train well. They start the game slowly. They make wrong decisions. Mistake after mistake, they lose. Monday morning, everyone comes in and sits down and they say, what went wrong? And rugby players are good people, people in round sport are normally good people. And they say, hand up, yes, James. Oh, well, you know, we, we started slow. 
yeah, why do we start slow? Uh, well, because, you know, maybe uh, in the week we didn't train hard enough. Okay, well, what are we going to do this week? We're going to train harder. Um, you know, what, well, what else could happen? Or maybe because the guys who weren't involved in the team weren't pushing the starters hard enough, okay? So you finish that, they all go, so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to train harder, we're going to work harder, and we're going to finish. And then we walk out the room. And that's like, everyone's like, yeah. That's the equivalent of telling a depressed person to cheer up. There is no, there's no, just because you train hard in the week doesn't correlate to you having a great performance on the weekend because so many times teams don't do that. So if a team's starting slowly, why is that? Well, you've got 23 players, 15 players. What, what were the guys doing mentally? Were they, were they up for it? Were they prepared? Were they intimidated? Were they scared? Did, had they got the routine right? And in rugby in general, it's always been a, like a lip service. There's always like a psychologist, but he's always walking around on the outside of the huddle. You know, players are scared to go and talk to him. I, I from the age of 17 to 35, I, I've always spoke to sports psychologists, psychologists, always about, you know, starting off trying to get into be helping performance. Because I think a lot of people, a lot of men particularly, think that when you go and speak to psychologists, A, it's a sign of weakness. B, everybody likes to pretend they've got nothing going on and that they're absolutely fine. We've all got shit going on in different, different, different guises. And sometimes the shit we've got going on is what we call our recipe for success. So say, for example, your dad wasn't very nice to you when you were a kid and something else happened. You're probably being successful because you turn around and gone, fuck you, dad. I'm going to show you. And that's your recipe for success and how and, and, and showing the world and sticking two fingers up. The problem is at some point, the recipe can become the thing that undoes you. And it's a fine balancing act. So when I started playing, I, had, I didn't have any problems. I came from a privileged, privileged background, you know, um, and, and I, I, I thought you had to go and speak to a psychologist, lie down and start crying about shit. But no, we worked on like performance. We worked on match preparation. We worked on what happens when you turn up for a game. You've had an argument with your missus. You, you know, your parents aren't very well. You don't want to be there. Selection's been shit. The media calls you a prick. How do you then switch on and get that on? So we work very hard on that. How do I deal with coaches being unbelievably negative? No, not, 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 you know, not being respectful. So I did that personally, but I reckon out of a squad of 40 players, there was probably three of us who were doing wow. that. Wow. Then you then finish playing, right? And I had, a, I had a, you know, what I would class a relatively successful career. I'm not, I'm not satisfied with what I did. I would have liked to have done more. And, um, you know, I'm never satisfied with anything, really. But I, I think that's my recipe for success. But the problem with it is, is that then you're never fucking never, fulfilled. Yeah, so then yeah, yeah. you've got to enjoy shit, you know. So that can lead to all sorts of things. Imagine you're a player that's had an all right career. You haven't earned a lot of money. You finished early. And then you suddenly find yourself out of the changing room and selling insurance in the city you know, doing a job you didn't want to do, that you never want to do, with people you don't know for not a lot of money, you know, working, a, a, you know, a six from six in the morning to fucking 10 o'clock at night making the teas. Yeah. That's a massive step down. That's a surefire way of getting getting depression yeah. uh, and everything. And it's something that you have to watch really hard. And I've, I've had days, you know, where there'd be few and far between, but even in lockdown, I, I sat down one day and I was like, everything I do is DJing, public speaking, the gym, uh, F45 gym business, you know, luckily the podcasting kept going because we could all do it virtually and everybody became a, a technological a whiz. But I sat down with my wife and I looked across the table, sitting exactly here, and I went, what the fuck am I doing? And she went, yeah. what do you mean? I said, well, what am I doing with my life? Like, what, what's going on? I'm not good at anything anymore. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not world-class anymore. Everything I do is stopped. What do I do? So she's brilliant at situations like that. We stopped, we went back, we got my notebook out, we wrote down all the things that I like doing, how we could monetize and what we were doing. And then I switched straight back into positive thinking and carried on. And I think the surefire way of depression is finishing playing and doing all the stuff you don't want to do 
So everything I did was all about stuff I like doing. And it turns out, you're gonna, you're gonna, Dodge, you're gonna be shocked by this, that I am a fucking massive attention-seeking whore and anything that involves performing, <laughs> I, I absolutely love. So yeah. yeah, anything that involves me standing out in front of people, performing, I love. So now my day is wake up, train, podcast, performing, virtual festival thing, performing, DJing, live stream, performing, going to meet people. You know, we went to NatWest, went to a grassroots club uh, on behalf of NatWest. I was drilling down decking, meeting fans. You know, that's my life. That's what I love to do. And I don't want to change it. But a lot of players don't have that choice. Yeah. And there is, there is apart from Restart Rugby, who do an amazing, um, I've just become a trustee from the RPA, um, I do an amazing job of helping players. There's an anonymous hotline that the RPA have set up through Restart. And about uh, every season, we get about 70 to 80 calls. And last season alone, they helped between 50 and 60 players with mental health issues. And there's probably about three of them who are going to kill themselves if they hadn't put, wow. that, uh, put that call in. And, wow. and, and that's funded by nobody but, but um, private benefactors and fundraising. And the clubs don't put any money into it. The RFU don't put any money into it. Wow. But it's genuinely saving people's lives. So there is a massive amount of work to do, a massive amount of work to as players. But the problem is, is that, you know, we're, we're very good as sports people and as men of going... Oh, I really support that. But if it doesn't happen to you, you ignore it. It's only when your fucking house is burning down did you realise you should have bought smoke alarms and a fire extinguisher. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Massively, mate. Massively. So let's moving on, mate. I've, I've, I've been, I've been watching you for years on, on playing rugby and whatever. And I've seen a massive entrepreneurial spirit in you, which is absolutely fantastic. And I can see it all coming alive right now over the last year or two. Um, but remember back in the days, it was always brand Haskell, brand Haskell, and I always saw people taking the piss, and I never really liked it because. Actually, what you've created now is the entrepreneur in yourself by doing the podcast and everything you're doing right now. So massive hats off to you for that, for sticking by it and for seeing the future. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the, the brand Haskell thing came about by, um, I, again, I keep mentioning the book and I'm trying to flog it, but it's genuine. I've, I've tried to give everyone a, a piece of all this stuff in what a flanker. It's, it's a basically, they, it was a coach, so a coach that I was playing for. I didn't sign for them. I decided to leave Wasp. The coach was a Wasp coach. He got asked in the media, why did James Haskell not sign? And they didn't say because we fucking offered him a pay cut and we didn't, you know, we, did, we told them that they were going to have to do this and that. He said it, he called me Brand Haskell. He said he's much more interested in building a brand. So that reputation followed me everywhere. And then, you know, you get the likes of, uh, uh, you know, um, Stuart Barnes and other commentators. They start saying Brand Haskell this. He's more interested in that. You know, I remember... Um, I can't remember what the fucking hooker's name now was for England. Um, the pit bull, Brian Moore. So Brian Moore, you know, does an article in the paper, right? He says, I've never met James Haskell. I've never, I've never met him, but he's got a website. Uh, and that, for me, that tells you everything you need to know about it, right? So I was, I was blamed for always preparing for life outside of rugby while I was playing rugby. There was no brand Haskell. I never thought I was a fucking brand. I thought that... Um, you know, you have a one opportunity at life. Yeah. I wanted to, to, to live my life to full. And I was there when, when Matt Hampson broke his neck on, on a scrummaging session. He never walked again. He's had an amazing life off the back of it. But that, that was a warning to me. So my entrepreneurial spirit has come about the fact that you get one life, one opportunity. And if you run me over in a bus today, um, or my wife shanks me, which is probably more likely, <laughs> I, um, you know, I can say that I gave it everything. And I, I've always pushed to make sure that I develop myself because there's kind of three rules that I live my life by. And it's kind of goes into it, you know, obviously the, the, the entrepreneurial nature of your, of your podcast and stuff is 
you can there's three guaranteed things in life and you should only worry about the things you can control and you can guarantee and that is is um how you treat other people yeah right that's one thing you can control so it doesn't matter if they're assholes whatever you can treat that the next thing is is how you treat your body you're given yeah. one body right if you know the famous baz lerman song you know when your knees are gone you'll miss them you know mm. and when your body falls apart so all this you know people overeating and destroying their body and filling it with a shit and saying that you know i'm big and i'm beautiful it's great but you're fucking body up um you know you've only got one chance to do that and the, the next point is is your, how you develop your mind and you know i i want to constantly be learning and getting better so i'm always undertaking new skills and that's all i did through, through playing and yeah. doing those things actually gives you more balance i'll give you an yeah. example so if I was a rugby player, so I look at these, some of these young rugby players, right, who have nothing else about them apart from rugby. They, you ask them, what's your favourite thing? I want to play for England, right? Yeah. What else do you do? Well, I love, I play rugby all the time. Okay, so what else yeah. do you do after that? No, well, I'll, you know, I watch rugby in my spare time. Okay. If, if you're rugby... They're all Northern. Going, most of them are quite aggressive <laughs> in Northern. Was, I, was thinking, I was thinking of some Northern people, because they, they love rugby. They're like, fucking love rugby, right? right? I love rugby, me, mate, right? So they they... You know, so that's great. But when rugby's going real well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Playing well, loving the game you love, that's all you want to do, simple life. What happens if you get injured? What do you do then, right? Well, well, then you're fighting to get back fit. Yeah, but you're having bad days. So then your life's bad because you've got nothing more about it. And then you throw a, a missus in there or, or a partner and they start fucking up or, or it starts falling apart. Hold a minute. So your day job's fucked, your partner's fucked. What else are you doing? Well, I'm going to watch more rugby, but you're missing the rugby because you're not playing. So it's, it's making it worse. I always wanted to have something that when I finished and walked off the training field, I had something else that I loved to do. So it started off with the with the, the fitness business. So it meant that if rugby was going badly and the fitness business was going well, then then that was positive. Or it meant that I could I could condense my days to focus on the task in hand in one area, leave no stone unturned in being the best rugby player, but draw a line under it, go home, don't take your work home with you, focus on something else. And then it went from, you know, it went from developing a social media presence where all the pop pitfalls of social media, the beauty is it's about bringing people closer and it's the only PR you control. You know, everybody thinks I'm a prick, but at least I can not pretend I'm a prick while putting out on social media, you know? Hey, I get it. I totally get it. And what, what are your thoughts about your, when did you get into DJing? Were you DJing, were you DJing while you were a rugby player? So, so what happened was I, I, uh, I was really late to music. I'm, I'm a very uncool person, right? So I'm, I know like you, you've got to have like self-awareness. Like I've got to be wearing a lane. I'm not cool, right? I was never, I look back at my childhood and it was like spent, my childhood was a combination of me being outside dressed as an army soldier and like coming in and watching and cartoons and movies. There wasn't a lot of like watching sport. I had no self-awareness about fashion. My mum used to buy my clothes up until I was 14. She used to lay my clothes out for me to wear. I didn't know about cool. I'd go to the sports shop and go, mum, can I have this cool trainer? She'd be like, no, she'd give me the correctional shoes that came with the prescription. <laughs> so it, I, I just didn't understand anything. So I bought my first CD when I was uh, 16. It was a brim full of Asher on the 45, right? I got some pocket money, went down with my mates. They all bought, went to HMV and we bought a CD and we were like, fuck, yeah, this is cool. You know, once I listened to it 2000 times, I wasn't interested. It was only when... I started speaking to my sports psychologist. Did I start using music as a tool to manage my emotions? So we, you know, you know, you walk out a day, walk out the door on a, on a summer's day. You get in your car, the radio comes on. There's a fucking tune. You're like, yeah, Whoa, yeah this is the, yeah. yeah, this is what it's about, right? You're, you're singing, and make, it doesn't matter what happens, it makes you feel a million dollars. I started harnessing that to, to play rugby. So every week I would make a playlist, and every song, as soon as you hear it, you'd be like. 
this is amazing. You'd be dark, you'd be sick, you know, yeah. and you feel more powerful, you know, and, and you had to keep updating that. Otherwise it lost its impact. That then coincided with me starting to go to, to Vegas. When I was 21, I started going to Las Vegas, unbelievable place, the king of all places. Yeah, man. Um, I went, I went 13 times um, in a period of time. And then funny enough, when I, when I met Chloe, that stopped. Um, that stopped. But uh, <laughs> that door was closed firmly. So I went to I go to Vegas and, and, you know, my first time I ever went there was when the, the coolest thing in Vegas was rehab party yeah, at Hard Rock Hotel. And yeah. I remember the first day, classic me, vest on, aviators on with the lads. We roll out, you open those doors, right? And the sun hits you and the music's thumping. It's just fit people everywhere, men and women. Everyone's having a rave up. And there's a DJ standing at the front of the thing. He's fucking controlling the whole whole move, right? Start listening to EDM, right? Uh, you know, and I was like, fucking hell, this is the life. And I thought, the guy's getting all the attention. I'm an attention whore. You know, why would I not do that? I then I then um, started going to places like Tomorrowland and stuff like this. And I really fell in love with the music. And I thought to myself, I want to be the guy at the front of the room controlling everyone's night because you're playing music that makes you feel good. You're playing music that makes everybody else feel good and all their eyes on you and you're controlling it. And it's a performance element. So I then went on a deep, I went and um, reached out in my little black book and discovered that loads of uh, DJs are rugby fans. So Jaguar Skills, Seb Fontaine, Simon Dunmore, uh, you know, uh, Alan Fitzpatrick, um, all these guys were our, our, our DJ, our, our rugby fans. So I end up doing a little bit of a lesson with each one. The problem is, is that I don't learn. You know, these guys are so creative, like Jaguar Skills. Was teaching He's unbelievable, me, isn't he? It was unbelievable, yeah. yeah. And he was teaching me to beat juggle yeah. with, with vinyl. And I was like, fuck, you know, this is, this is quite hard. You need, like, you know, it's going to take years. So yeah. I then went on a course. I found an online course about eight years ago. Um, and if you did the course, there was an opportunity for you to play a Ministry of Sound as your first gig on the balcony. So I did the course one-on-one. -on -one. used to drive down to, to, to London after training, go and do these one-on-one -on -one lessons, pay for the whole thing. So I got better and better and better. Uh, and then my first gig was at... Um, was at uh, Ministry of Sound. And do you know what? I mate, I, I just fell in love with it. I was like, it was the same feeling for me as running out of Twickenham or playing in front of a crowd. Same bus, nervousness beforehand, desire to perform and not make mistakes. And then the crowd reaction, as soon as you know that you've led them down a path and you just put the bass out and everyone's like, bah! you're like, Ugh! it's like, yeah. It's like, you know, remember Arnold Schwarzenegger talks about, you know, in um, Pump and Iron, he's like, for me, lifting weights is like coming, you know? So I'm coming in the gym, I'm coming at home. <laughs> yeah, DJs like me, it's like, it's good as, it's good as sex, you know? Like, you know and it was, it was that gig. And so basically it, it came from there and then I got involved into the, you know, the university circuit. And yeah. the problem with being a, in inverted commas, a celebrity DJ is you, you are, you don't have any credibility and you are bracketed and everybody thinks you can't do what you do. So I, yeah. same, same approach I, I've taken to rugby as, I, as, I, as DJing to, to rugby. I still can't get a guy to come around to my house, teach me new skills, four deck mixing, three deck mixing, acapellas. I've just got a music, I've just got a track signed. Um, it's coming out in February next year uh, with a big label. I can't say too much more about it, but that's coming out to produce your music. Um, and, but some of these uni gigs are like the Bournemouth Sevens, mate. The fuck, like that's, that's 2,000, 3,000 people. You know, the biggest I did was a 5,000 people and you're there and you walk out and it's fucking 5,000 people, 3,000 people, especially in the VVIP people yeah. dressed as me. 
with video cameras and shit. Do you remember the fella on the stage? Mate, like, no, it was on someone's shoulders, wasn't he? It was, yeah. And, and Me I, and I, you I, were on stage looking at him filming. <laughs> mate, and I came out and you were like, listen, Hass, because I know you were a bit like, oh, you know, could, can I DJ? Could you not DJ? <laughs> That's you, right. was, it, was it all hype? You were a bit nervous. You were like, make sure you play some bangers. Did, I don't want any techno shit. I was like, God, <laughs> just fucking take your foot off the gas, son. Take your foot off the fast, right? First thing was uh, Free From Desire. It dropped. Everybody, everyone just went mental and i was mate for an hour we were just it was amazing in that place yeah, yeah and, it was um, amazing I, and i just still like there's stuff like that i just it, I, I love it and and then um you know you get to i've been age in ibiza i did ibiza rocks uh it opened up for craig david so it's all i want to do is that amazing. aspect of it the good problem for you, with it mate. Is, do you know what the energy and, and, and the positivity mate it's only only good things are coming your way really is do you remember Thanks, the t- do you remember the time when I met you and um, Chloe? You arrived in the VIP at the back, and you had a portal cabin, and me, you, and Chloe walked around the festival. And I think you were blown away at the magnitude of it. Do you remember walking yeah. around for an hour? Yeah. Well, so I everybody had always talked about Bournemouth Seven. So the lads had always said we're going down to Bournemouth end of the season because we always had a tour. We could never go, or or, or it was like you know you had to meet up on a Sunday, so I could on Friday. So I'd never gone there. So when you asked to play the Bournemouth Sevens, obviously sometimes I don't necessarily pay too much attention to what. What's going on? Someone said to DJ, I'm like, yeah, what's the cash? What are we going to do? Let's go and do it. And, um, and uh, ca- cash first. How much are you paying? Cash, oh, fucking cash first. How much, cash Dodge? First. Yeah, right. It's just, it's, it's just for me and my mates. Fuck it. The money's <laughs> right over there. So, so I, because uh, I, um, this is how, what, the biggest gig I ever did was that I got invited down to the Winter Garden in Blackpool for the young farmers, right? And I basically turned up there and I walked in and it took me to the green room and I was with Chloe. And I said, oh, can I just see the stage and set up? Just see I've got the right equipment and everything. And I walked out and there's 5,000 people in a metal railing and a band on. And I was like, fucking hell, they must have a good DJ in here, like, here tonight. So I went back to the room. I said, right, tell me who's on before me, right? Because you sometimes, like, if you came on and there was like a trance DJ, I can't then start. You, you have to kind of work in. out yeah. what, yeah, you've got yeah, to yeah, work yeah. out what you're going to do. Need a warm up. Exactly. And they mm. said, right, well, actually, um, it's a band. I said, sweet. Okay. I said, who's on after? Who's headlining? And they went, you are. And I was like, what? I'm headlining, so I had to go and have a minute with Chloe. I was like, Chloe, I, I, I'm so unprepared. I fucking, I, you know, what's going on? So then I went and rocked it, and that was fucking mega. But when I went to your festival, I hadn't, I didn't appreciate what it was. I thought it was like a bit of a seven tournament. To see like eight, well, how many stages? Like seven or eight stages? Twelve, twelve. Twelve stages, right? Yeah. Twelve stages. Each stage with their own identity, own vibe, incredible yeah. top DJs. To have that many people, it was like a, it was like I don't know what I thought. But it was completely blown away. Like it was, it's a proper, proper hands down festival that could rival anything. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is fucking unbelievable. Um, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. And it will be back. I'm sure it will be back very soon. 100%, mate. Next year. It's just a blip this year, mate, the C word. But I, I, never, I, never forget, I never forget that feeling. I looked at you, I thought, he's looking a bit nervous. And then uh, you looked at me going, you're looking a bit nervous. We both have that's both nervous feelings, didn't we? <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, I know what you thought. It's because I have because because I have some of the stuff that I. It's hard because you know when you my 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 music preference is is a bit more defective style. I like vocal house. I like a bit more tech house. You know, you could, that the most important thing about being a good DJ, if you speak to anybody, is is playing what the crowd wants to play to the crowd. So you know, I I could see you were like you know we had a conversation. You were like, look. Can he actually play? Is he like Paris Hilton? Have I been sold a puppy? I'm paying him good money. Is he going to turn up and suddenly start playing, you know, 130 BPM techno? Is everyone going to boo him off? Am I going to have to rescue him? 
but but you pl you play to crowds. You know, they want they want vocal commercial house. They're there to party and dance. They're not music critics. You're not there to fucking educate them. You're just there to play bangers. And mate, it was banger after banger after banger. It was. Mate. And, and, it you, was. you got that place jumping. It was actually one of the first times I'd started taking security with me around because um, obviously being like a big guy, people they get steaming. They get all on top of you, didn't they? I'd done stuff on on the Good the Bad Rugby podcast about you know fans. You know, with me, they get really like back slappy and like hit yeah. them, and you're like. Lads, can't we just have a handshake? Like I wouldn't, I, you know, I've known you for years. I wouldn't fucking body shot you yeah. doing it. So um, I, had a, I had a lunch in uh, in London once, and a guy gave me a bit of stick while I was speaking up, and I buried him, and everyone made a neck a pint. And later on, he came up behind me, licked his finger, and stuck it in my ear. Oh. And this was right in the middle of my my MMA track. So I I said, look, I've got to take security. And there was a great scene where you were walking through the crowd, and I had Chris, the security guy, and basically he had Chloe by one hand because she was getting left behind. You're holding on to me. We're holding. We're piling through this this thing. It was, it was, it was, it was, I, I said to him, mate, you earned your money. Yeah, he did, didn't he? And then we had Tom Curry. You and I were talking, and this bloke kept tapping on the shoulder, poking me, and I was like, "Well, give it a minute, mate." Kept tapping, and I was like, "Just give it a minute. I'm just talking here." And I went, "Will you fuck it?" Oh, it's Tom Curry. Tom, Tom how are you? <laughs> and then he came backstage, but I think he tried to. Was it him or Chloe? Or someone was trying to egg him on to let off a fire extinguisher on everybody. And I was like, Chloe. We can't seem we do that. Not no, here, I said that. Please. Not here. Anywhere, but not this gig. Yeah, not this, please. <laughs> mate, you definitely had it off that night, mate. Yeah, it was awesome. good. I love it. It's one of my favourite things I've ever, genuinely, it's one of those favourite things I've ever I've ever done that uh, that Bournemouth gig. You know, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity because, hey, the photos are great. The, foot, you know, the footage is a bit great. It's just, um, mate, it was absolute vibes and uh, yeah. I'd do it any time. As long as you're paying. As long as the cash is right. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how it's amazing how much I love it, but do I love it enough to do it for free? No. <laughs> Mate, let's, let's go on to the uh, I'm a Celebrity. Tell me about your experience there, what it was like in there. Just tell us the experience of the of what you went through and what was Ian Wright like? <laughs> so, firstly, Ian Wright is a legend. Um, you know, really interesting character, amazing kind of backstory uh, and personality and kind of... Uh, you could see sort of internally a few battles going on, um, you know, a few demons came out and stuff, but, you know, he was, he was amazing for me. You know, I, I absolutely love him. I think he's an incredible footballer. He was kind of, I was never into football, but he was, you know, one of the iconic footballs that I, I knew about. And to meet him and see what a good guy he was and how um, kind he was to me during that, that lockdown, to share those moments with him, for us to both be chained together and going through that. Yeah. And it, it was, what was quite funny, but, the I'm a Celebrity thing was interesting because I got asked to do um, Strictly Come Dancing and I um, I said no. Uh, I didn't think, A, my body could take it. B, I think, I don't, I'm not sure it's overly good for your relationships. I don't think. I think you've got to yeah. pretend to be sexy with someone for, you know, 12 weeks, you know, seven hours a day. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm not saying I haven't got any self-control, but I just think it's, 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 it does put strain in it. You know, your missus is always going to be concerned, whatever they, whatever they say. Um... But I, so I then basically said no, and I'm a celebrity came along, and I was concerned that me, live TV, uh, recording for 24 hours a day, that's a recipe for a disaster. And especially yeah. in 2020, where everybody's default position is, I'm offended, change yeah. my mind, right? Anything you say now offends everybody. And I've come to the conclusion that if common sense dictates what you say is fine, and, and say you get, hundred comments on your on your page and 90 are really positive and and uh, 10 are uh, negative then you're in the majority you're 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 right and um so i never wanted to do reality tv they they, they offered me some okay money to do it wasn't a life-changing anything it wasn't mega i was probably one of the lowest paid ones on there and um 
you know, I, I found it uh, eye-opening, very emotional. Um, obviously, realised pretty quickly you're at the mercy of the editors. Mm. Um, a lot of people and celebrities go on that and find themselves, find themselves. For me, it was like a pre-season camp. I was stuck with a load of people I'd never met before in, in pretty shit accommodation, bored out my mind. <laughs> and the challenges were like horrible fitness sessions. And actually, I turns out I'll do anything to get some food. Um, the nutrition side was was the, the worst. And, you know, I know, Dodge, you know, you know a little bit about health and fitness and people, you know, people who follow me know that it's been my, my life and stuff. It, and my wife's nutritionist, and, you know, when they told me that you'd be on uh, 1500 calories per day, mm, right? Wow. Uh, and if you won, if you won some food, you would, you would top that up. All right. I, uh, I was like, do you know what? I could probably do that. I could do mm. that. I could survive. It should be okay. When I discovered that it was four spoonfuls of beans in the morning, so dessert spoonfuls of beans and four spoonfuls of beans at, uh, at lunch. And, you know, that was what I had for 17 kind of days. And when we won food in the evening, we, we, I think we were probably one of the years with the most winningest team of all, of all the stars. And you got crocodile feet, vegetables and, and, and basic rice and beans. And there was no high calorie food and there was no fats, yeah. no fats in your diet. So there was no like butter, you've got a bit from cooking oil. So when I came out of the jungle and put put you know four spoonfuls of brown rice, four spoonfuls of zinc into my fitness pal, it was 89 calories, right? That's 89 calories for the day. Plus, if you put a bit of oil, that's 100 calories. So I was on 100 calories from seven in the morning till eight in the evening. And then when you won it, you that would top up to about, you know, on a good day, 800. One day we had a roast, so it, you know it pushed us probably over to 1100, mate. It, I was, I was, the way I dealt with the stress of it is that when you're on a TV show like that, nobody wants, and that's what was my downfall. You know, people don't want opinions. The people who do very well sit in the background, let shit yeah. wash over them. You know, I, in a t I'm used to being in a team environment where someone doesn't pull their weight, you, you call them. If someone's doing something detrimental to the mentality of the whole team, you've got to call them on it because people don't appreciate the, the, the dynamics. You know, just because there was one instance where someone hadn't won some food, someone had said something to the bloke that had lost lost out to get the guy in he was feeling really down somebody was rubbing it in the fact that they'd had the food someone else kept asking about the food and as a, a captain and a leader of men i was like you know you've got to stop doing that because you're affecting him but you don't do that but over tv they don't show that they just yeah. show you telling the bloke to shut the fuck up and, it, yeah. and and that's that's the problem with it and it lo loses that but i i wouldn't change anything that i did on that uh i did on that show but it, it there was basically times where i the way i dealt with the boredom was just keep doing shit uh, like so I kept going to get water I kept boiling water for people I kept doing this I kept tidying the stuff up because it kept me busy mm. but the problem is, is that by the end of it by day 17 16 17 I would carry some water up two buckets of water put them down I'd be, I would be dizzy my yeah. vision would be going and I'd lie down sleep for oh. half an hour get back up and go again all because of, of the limited calories and you know it's dangerous and I was the biggest by far away the biggest um Contestant, you know, I went in there 122 kgs. I came out 110. I lost wow. 12 kgs in 18 days. Um, wow. And I almost had a panic attack one day about the food. And, you know, before I went in, I'd flagged a lot of this stuff up. So there was one occasion where I, I you know, in that diary room, I was like, you motherfuckers, like, you motherfuckers, like, you know, you've lied to me. And they're like, are you feeling angry? I'm like, yeah, no, I am angry. Well, well are, you, are you being okay with the other campmates? And they were trying to label me as like, I was going to murder all the campmates. I was like, <laughs> And I was like, 
if you keep asking me if I'm angry, you're making me fucking angry. I'm not angry with them. It was like nightmares. They, ter- they were terrified I was going to kill everyone. And they've got a psychologist on there who was, who was you know, could tell us like, oh, he's going to, Hassel's going to lose it. And, and, you know, I was like, I'm not going to fucking lose it. I'm a professional, but, you know. Positives, come out of a six pack, straight to Ibiza. Uh, straight to smugglers. Yes, budget smugglers. Um, <laughs> do you know what the positivity, well, the positivity was, I was an honour to be asked to be on a show that gets 40 million viewers. Um, the positives are that, Unlike sports fans, everybody who watched that, um, apart from the trolls who, who, who accused me of bullying and everything else like that, everyone I've ever met, as opposed to sports fans, only says nice things. Yeah. Sports fans will come up and go, I used to think you were a prick and then I saw you play for England and now I like you. Yeah. I'm a celeb fan to come up and go, James, are you I thought you were brilliant. I love yeah. how you were. You know, da, da. So that's really uh, revolutionary. In terms of career-wise, it had absolutely no impact on my career whatsoever. I'm more well-known. Um, yeah. I would say to anyone who's going to do it, you know, I didn't have the, probably the best agents at the time. And I also think that you need to go into it with a plan, right? So if you look at the different audience figures of who's successful, you know, Roman Kemp, very successful, um, you know, uh, good guy, uh, Capital FM, Breakfast Morning, already ready-built audience. Uh, girls love him. Uh, younger people love him. Jacqueline Josser, you know, EastEnders uh, royalty, uh, you know, uh, powered mum, ready-made audience mm. kate garraway older women yummy mummy uh you know a, a, a <laughs> journalist tv intelligent yeah you know but there isn't a ready-made audience for a washed up retired aggressive cage fighting djing book selling podcast a rugby player right and 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 I, I, if i'd gone in there with a bit more of a not a strategy but if i'd thought about it because when i came out you know I, th- I thought for example i would be djing loads of nightclubs you know because i you know i spoke to um Anton uh, Anton Daniluk from um, Love Island, right? He did 86 personal appearances in a nightclub. So I said wow. to my, so well, when are we doing this stuff? I said, because um, he goes, well, you're not single and you're not good looking enough. And um, it's a different market with Love Island. I went, yeah, but I could DJ in 86. For, so yeah. they're getting something, for, I'll, I'll do something for them, smaller fee, and we'll go there and we'll sell yeah. it. Nothing. So I did nothing off the back of it. I mean, it, I'm, I'm wow. a bit more well-known and people are nice, but it's absolutely not changed my life in any way, shape or form. Um, and if I, in hindsight, I'd still do it, but you've got to be very careful because the risks of you fucking that up and yeah. ruining your career so you never work again yeah. are, are, are pretty high, you know? Yeah. Would you go into doing another reality TV show? If they're paying Dodge, I should appear. <laughs> Show me the money. Show me the money. If um, I think I would, I, you know, I would do, I would do reality TV again. Um, I think I was myself. I am myself. And do you know what? I've got an opinion, and in 2020, having an opinion is not is not necessarily off, off that welcome. But I like what I do, and I think I could definitely do something. Um, I got asked to do the SAS Who Dares Wins. That for me, yeah. I think would be an absolute dream. But my, until my body's better, I can't even contemplate trying to, to do that. Yeah, but otherwise, yeah. if that was ever an opportunity, I think I'd quite like to try that. I think yeah. that'd be a cracker, in fact. Will you, will you uh, give us a little bit of information about your book that's coming out? When's it coming out? Yeah, so funny you should ask that. I've got it here. What there flag it is. This is the first copy in uh, in the UK. It's coming out 1st of October. Um, it's available pre-order on Amazon, Waterstones. There's still some signed copies, actually, that I've done um, that you can go to all the links are on my Instagram, at James Haskell. So a lot of people who write autobiographies it's like you know i when i was five my mum took me to rugby and i love my mum and you yeah. know i always wanted to be a player this, this is nothing like that this is short stories this is all the funny bits that have happened this is all my and it's a very cliche thing to say but my truth you know a long time in in 
things I've had incidents in my life, you know, scandal, front page of papers, you know, everything else where I haven't said what I was going to say. I've held my tongue. Uh, I haven't been able to, to be honest. And this is about doing that. This is about creating a story and showing people my life, um, some of the mad things that have happened to me, um, and to really give an insight into 2011, 2015, my time at WASP, um, you know, behind some of the biggest scandals, the, 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 you know, the porno at school, all these other things that sort of, you know, that I was on the front page. And it's, and it's, 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 you know, it's easy. So if you, if you don't know anything about rugby or don't anything, but you want to hear something funny, then you then pick that up. If, if it's not a, you know, it's not like a glorified training guide, you know, some of these guys books and don't, I don't blame them for it, but you know, it's like we were 10 nil down against Wales and you know, I, I, you're like, all right, fucking, you know, I want it to be fun, exciting for people to not be put it down. I also have a laugh at myself. You know, the very fact the title is essentially what a wanker. I thought it was, uh, it was quite a good, good work. <laughs> Tell us about the, uh, you have a bit of business as well, your podcast. What happened to the House of Rugby? Why did that stop? Do you know what? Unfortunately, for legal reasons, I can't tell you about that. Um, uh, with this, yeah, something ongoing with that, unfortunately. Look, it was um, it was great uh, while it lasted. I think they're going to relaunch. I think apparently there's, there's stuff happening there, um, but uh, unfortunately, I can't go into it. I don't, if I tell you, I'd have to kill you. Yeah, yeah, fair play, mate, fair play. Mate, um, Ian Stafford, remember him? Mm, the I journalist. yes. You threw him across the room in one interview. Yes, I did. He yes, was yes. on. He was on our show last week, and he feels he's going to take you out in a in an MA rig in a cage. What Ian, Stafford's, Ian Stafford's been talking shit since day dot. Um, you know, I, he. Uh, it was quite funny actually. That, that that thing we did was was kind of my idea. I said, you know, I'd love, I'd love to, you know, journalists talk shit and are, are unaccountable for what they are not made accountable for what they say and do. You know, uh, in a paper, you write an opinion piece. So a Piers Morgan writes an opinion piece. You know, one day slags off Boris Johnson, next day talks up Boris Johnson, slags off best friends of Donald Trump, slags off Donald Trump. You yeah. know, that ability to flip-flop is kind of a, a journalist's, uh, it's part of their, you know, repertoire. But yeah. nobody holds them accountable. You know, nobody calls them up. And I, I said to Ian, look, I'd love to to do something, do a sketch. And it, and it, and it turned into kind of a, a, a caricature. It went viral, didn't it? It went viral. It went, yeah. And it was bizarrely one of the first viral kind of things yeah, that we ever did. Um but people believe it, you know, people yeah. believe that I would A, lose it. Like I would, you know, I, I, he'd have to have done something, he'd have to push me, like physically push me to me to lose it. I would never have lost it. And, you know, to say a poor man's Delalia, I fed him that line. But people yeah. would write underneath it, what a dick, what <laughs> is that, you know, how dare he say it. And I think Ian, for once, um, potentially, I mean, you know, it might have humbled him a little bit because he suddenly realised that that's the shit we get. That's my, that's my life day in, day out. You know, you're a prick, I hope you die. And, and, you know, and, and he was getting... Oh, good on your house. Good on for filling him in. I was like, lads, I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Ash, before we uh, before we wrap this up, buddy, have you got any questions for me? Yeah, and what I've always been in, well, what I have been interested in is is you know you've taken a couple of businesses and made them super successful. Do you do you have kind of three tips for people who are starting out in in, in business to 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 follow? Well, I think the biggest one for me, mate, is obviously been in business twenty odd years and created a lot of brands. Biggest one for me is doing your research. As long as you do your research so well and make sure you find a gap in the market. If you believe that someone's doing something well, can you do that better? Because all businesses are doing are pretty much copying each other and tweaking. Yeah, so if you can find a business that you think they are absolutely smashing, how can I make that better? Create a brand, how can I tweak it? How can I have better customer service? How can I, how can I present it better? And do I have a better product? And essentially, that's what business is about. And business, for me, is about keeping it so simple. So simple. It's overcomplicated. People overcomplicate business. Really do. And, and 
I think with your qualities and your uh, mindset and your connections and your social media reach and everything you've got going for you, I think it's I, I think there's huge opportunities for you as long as you're focused in. Because what I've noticed over the years, Hask, is that you'll try everything and you'll wait for something to stick. Where actually, if you took your energy and gone, you know what, instead of trying to do 20 things, let me focus on three things and I'm going to make them three, three things world beaters. Yeah, 100% and, agree. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's something that um, you know, my dad, you know, my dad's mentality, you know, was you know, throw a lot of mud and see what sticks. And mm. you know, initially, if you don't know your direction, that's fine. But you know, the old adage that uh, you know, doing, t you know, it's, it's not great to do ten things badly as opposed to do a couple of things well is 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 really important. Uh, do you think? Because I've actually done this exact conversation I have with people. You know, a lot of stuff I've 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 phased out, and I've, I've and actually I think doing too much has has watered my my. Um, my brand down yeah. has people think you'll do anything for money but it's not the case um do you think that when you said about doing your research do you think that's because it's so easy to start a business now you can start your own website you can set your own you can be selling within two minutes do you think that's what a lot of people do they just start without thinking a hundred percent mate well you think about it. google's only been around 25 years social media's only been around 12 years you know you can set up business we can create a global business very quickly these days people can pay online you can talk to people in japan USA, Canada, you can create, everyone's on your fingertips. Like I say, in my world, the events world, is as long as I've got that, my mobile, with all the contacts I've got on here, I'm one phone call away from anyone. As long as I've got that, some social media, and a laptop, that's all you need. And there's some reason people think that business has to be so complicated, you need offices, you need staff, you need this. Okay, don't get me wrong, as you are growing, you bring staff on board. Um, the hardest part of growing a business is that first member of staff, then the second member of staff, because that's the bit where you've got to break the back of the business to actually bring them on board. So you're actually making sure you create a profit at the end of that first year. And it might not, it might take you two or three years to create a profit, but there will be a point that you just, as long as you've got, as long as you've uh, got patience, there will be a point where you'll break the back of a business, but you need patience. At the end of the day, what I've noticed is everyone wants everything instant gratification these days. It doesn't happen in business. I've been in it a long, long time and created some wicked stuff. It just doesn't happen overnight. It can't. You have tips, because I would say you're pretty much a networker first. Obviously, you're very hardworking, but, you're, but you, you pride yourself on your ability to network. You know what I mean? You said about your contact. Do you have a little tips when you meet people for, for doing the network in terms of like, do you write their name on the back of a business card? Do you put the name straight into your phone? Do you make a note about them so you remember them? How, do you, is there anything you do around no, that? No, mate, I'm, I'm old school. Speak to someone, chat to them. If you think they're a good contact, hey, mate, take my number. What's your number? People are always nervous to say, what's your number? For some reason that they think that it's a weakness that you're asking for someone else. Well, that's not a weakness, that's a strength. You meet someone somewhere. I don't go out to networking events. I've never done networking events. I don't like business cards. Never hand out business cards. That's not my style. Actually, the way we've got social media these days and, and LinkedIn, my God, if you are not on LinkedIn, you are missing a massive move. 100%. Everyone's on LinkedIn these days and you can open up a door to anyone by pressing a button on LinkedIn. But contacts is, I got told from a young kid growing up in pubs, is everyone you meet is a contact. And that's all I've done. I've kept the same mobile number for 25 years there's no one i haven't got in there which is powerful stuff and my whole life revolves around the mobile fuck me i bet you get a few texts out of the blue don't you um, yeah <laughs> you don't, plenty that you don't yeah that you don't need plenty yeah, of texts out of the blue mate but um mate you're mate you, you you're definitely on the right path of where you're going 
And at the end of the day, like you said earlier, you've got the character and okay, there's a lot of people sit on the fence. You don't sit on the fence, you say it how it is and that works, you know, with a little bit of homing in, you know, I mentor quite a few people, people who are in industry on in, in events or in, in the world of, in the world of just being the world of events or sponsorship or whatever it may, may be. Um, and I keep it really simple. I keep it really. You're setting up a course, aren't you? You're doing a course yeah. as well for everybody to get involved. Yeah, in. absolutely. We're, we're we're creating. That's why we created the event for entrepreneur. You know, it's about bringing. For me, the the world of events is my world. That's what I know. Thousands of events and twelve festivals and what have you. But it's creating an events course for people to allow them to get into the events industry. It's the most exciting industry there is out there. You know, and this course is going to lay it on a plate. It's going to be a business in a box. All online. It's a dynamic. It's a dynamic, cutting-edge course. It's going to teach people everything they need to know about events from the people who have brought all the events, and we're bringing all the best people from around the UK. It's all going to be online. It's going to be very, very, very fun and interactive. Um, we believe it's the way forward, and we've been working on that now for the last four months. We've got a few more months to go till we launch it, um, and I think we're in a very, very exciting space for it. Where, where will I be able to find it? Is it going to be like a website with it or is it social media? Yeah, there'll be a website launched with it in a couple of months' time, which I can't give the name away just now. Um, but a lot of work's going on behind the scenes and um, we're properly excited. I think a lot of people are going to be, whether you've, done a, whether you've done a degree or not done a degree, it doesn't matter. Whether you're an 18-year-old thinking of going to uni, do this events course. You'll do this events course in three months online or you go to uni and do an events course and it takes three years. Ours is a fraction of the price and a fraction of the time with the shit that you need to know about events from start to finish, from creating a brand, from um, build, building, uh, building a website, to having a plan, to the marketing, to the sales, to putting on the event. So from start to finish, it's laid a business in a box. And, and what we've seen at the moment is a lot of people in industry, maybe work, maybe an estate agent or may work in another industry who have lost their jobs. This is a very quick way and a very cheap way to find a new industry for you. You know, so uh, obviously before I hijack your your interview with me interviewing you, I've got one question. What is your as an events man? What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you at one of your events, or like what's the worst thing that's happened in events wise? Good question. Like anything burnt down or blown up before you did it, or or you know someone's just not turned up. You've had to you've had to get on the stage and sing. Have oh, you heard my voice? No, I think I think but I think for in in a, for the festival, I think. The biggest stress for me and the most amount of pressure that I put myself under, not bringing 30,000 people into a field and making sure they have a wicked time and building the, the site takes two weeks to build and a week to take down. And obviously we promote the whole year and people fly in from different countries and what have you. I think the biggest stress that I find is the weather. That's one thing you can't control as a promoter or event organizers. You're, you're looking every day at Met Office. It's gonna be sunny on our weekend. Oh shit, it's gonna be raining. Oh no, it's, your emotions are like this. So over the years now, I've realized that no one has a clue about the weather. Not even Michael Fish. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did, not, not in 1984. Exactly. Uh, you, know, you know, I never, so all the players, I would never look at the weather forecast. Interesting, so a lot of lads would always look, I wish would look at it because nine times out of 10, it's never exactly. fucking right. They say oh, it's, gonna, it's gonna rain before this and it doesn't rain. And then you go, Lads, it's gonna be a super sunny weekend. You're like, yes, game's gonna be brilliant. And then it's pouring yeah. the rain. So I just stopped no, doing it. No, I agree, it. mate. And over the last right. uh, 13 years we've been doing the festival, over the last probably three or four years, I've just stopped looking at the weather until two or days, two or three days before you kind of get a gauge. Because what you want is a nice, dry, sunny weekend because everyone's there in trainers and shorts and they've got nice 
you know, a nice vibe, a spring in their step rather than wearing wellies and stuff. But over the last 13 years, I think we've had one wet one, which has been unbelievable. So luck's definitely been on our side. But again, one of the points you said a minute ago, you need luck in business. Don't forget luck. You can create your own luck by actually doing so much focusing and visualizing where you want to be and where you're going to get to. That luck all starts to happen because you're raising your energy levels. And when you raise your energy levels, you're bringing people in people from Manchester, people from there, you're bringing these people in to help you. And we're all at an age now, Hask, that we're all here to help. You know, this isn't a, a, a you versus me or them versus him. This is about collaboration. And the more people we can collaborate and get together and help each other out with contacts or social media or whatever it may be, this is what we're here to do. And it's the way forward. It makes it makes business a lot more fun when you're working with people. Well, I think we need to bring a Hask Fest to everyone. Hask Fest? Where should we do it? Uh, I don't know, but we need to do it. I, 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 a weekend house music, vibes, partying, protein shakes on tap, <laughs> with tequila, tequila and protein shakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we'll get we we'll get Paul um, Paul uh, Whitehouse on the door with a mirror. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry you can't, can't come in. <laughs> can't come in, in, in. Mate, you've been an absolute legend, legend, buddy. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat. Thanks, mate. Yeah, wicked. You take care of yourself, and I'll speak to you in the week. Cool. Cheers, brother. Thanks, mate. Yeah.